Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, when I think about sort of rhythm of our podcast, I have an image of myself getting very excited about something that I've read and then sort of pursuing you relentlessly until you agree to let us interview the author. Would you say that that's an accurate description? I I would say that that is a fairly accurate description, and I've got at least two books here on the table next to me that you've been badgering me to read, which I will get to eventually, I promise. Well, the book that inspired today's episode is called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. It's by Cornell professor Noliwe Rooks. And rather than attempting to summarize her main points, I'm going to cut right to her describing how she came to write the book in the first place. The year was 2010, and a student at Princeton, where Rooks was teaching then, dropped by to talk to her about the civil rights issue of our time. The student who came to see me was, and the book really came about by uh, me just trying to figure out uh, why it was all of a sudden there were so many um, earnest, really earnest, uh, overwhelmingly, because I was at Princeton, overwhelmingly white students who had never been around poor people, who had never been in inner city schools, who just were not used to and didn't know anything about those communities um, or those kinds of schools. And there was this laser-like kind of focus. Um, on the campus around this being uh, unequal education being the civil rights movement or issue of their generation and um, that there being a moral and ethical failure at the heart of uh, in America that we were allowing these separate kinds of educational experiences to take place. So it was compelling, you know, when you when you would hear and it just be so I really was was initially trying to figure out though, but why? Not looking a gift horse in the mouth. I'm I'm thrilled. The more people who want to try to uh, have expand ideas of democracy, um, um, and access, you know, that's great. But I just didn't understand where all of the energy was coming from. And the more that I would um, sort of engage in and look at it, it really seemed to me to be all about. Um, career and business and, you know, what they were going to do next um, in a good way, like a win-win. I, I'm used to to giving back um, to different communities because you don't get into a school like Princeton or Cornell or, you know, the elite schools, they're big for service um, as a part of the package that you present when you're trying to get into the school. So it kind of um, expands on that. Uh but then they were going into these communities and and uh, sort of acting as if there weren't parents or students, as if the people in those communities didn't care about the children or didn't care about education, and that they were coming in to provide these kinds of forms um, that they that the community members just needed to be grateful. That initial exchange with a young Princeton undergrad inspired what turned into a lengthy exploration through urban education reform and its odd bedfellows, through the tortuous history of public education in the U.S., and it left Rooks with a big unanswered question. 
And I don't think it's it's any you know secret. Like the thing that we know that has worked consistently, um, the only thing that worked for that very short period of time where we allowed it to work was integration. That worked by the metrics that we're always setting up, which have to do with achievement, equalizing achievement, test scores. I mean, I could quibble with um, some of how we're how we're the metrics that we're using, how we're evaluating what education is supposed to be doing. But it's pretty generally like we want um, test scores and dropout rates and college attendance to be the same across economics and across race. Um, And so then part of the project, part of what I started to notice is that uh, we seem to be willing and wanting as a country, as a nation from Reconstruction Forward um, to do anything but come up with uh, federal policies after Brown v. Board um, to really come up with federal policies to uh, privilege the the, the um, uh, integration of, of school systems. So one of the questions I started to ask is, you know, but what would have happened if all of these so-called educational entrepreneurs at the Zuckerbergs and the Wendy Cops and the um, Dave Levin, the, the folks who started the KIPP schools and Chris Whittle, who did Edison schools and all of these foundations and um, these folks who wanted to do good and equalize, like what would have happened if they had put all of that time, expertise, access, privilege, and money into trying to solve this riddle of why we can't integrate schools instead of coming up with um, these different idiosyncratic forms of education. While you take time to ponder that question, I want to bring my co-host Jack Schneider back in. He is, as you know, an education historian. Jack, we just heard Noliwe Rooks tell us that the period when the country got serious about integration is when we started to see the gaps between black and white students really narrow. I want you to tell us why those efforts ground to a halt and be quick about it because we're still only on the first chapter of cutting school. When people are talking about the end of the integration movement, they're largely talking about the 1974 Supreme Court case, Milliken versus Bradley, uh, which was an effort to expand on Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, uh, which was a case decided a few years before that, uh, and it was about school busing. And the effort in the Milliken case was to include Detroit's surrounding suburbs as a means of creating a diverse enough school district that uh, students could be moved around to different schools to create racially balanced schools. Uh, The court rejected this, uh, and as a result, uh, integration efforts, which had been largely driven by um, state and local desegregation efforts uh, as a part of the mandate from Brown 1 and Brown 2 in 1954 and 55, uh, largely ground to a halt. Um, Some continued on. In Los Angeles, for instance, the Crawford case uh, eventually was decided in the 1980s. It had dragged on for years and years. There had been some significant legal momentum behind integration that took a while to get going after the Brown case and which really begins to slow down in the 1970s and uh, grinds to a halt in the 1980s. And at that point, uh, we have scholars like Gary Orfield talking about a process of resegregation. And so Orfield and others would identify the 
period of uh, integration being from roughly 54 to 74, and then a, a steady retrenchment after that to the point where in many cases we see schools being more segregated today than a half century ago. Nice job, Jack. Now back to cutting school. As Rooks worked her way back through the complicated history of schools and segregation, she started to recognize some familiar themes. The first is the tremendous amount of energy and financial resources that have gone into preserving segregated schools. From Reconstruction, where uh, you had people saying, let's have poor people and rural people only do vocational education, up through... um, the 20s and 30s, where there were uh, these Rosenwald schools, which, um, you know, there's a whole story about how people sing the praises of how much Rosenwald did. And, and those schools were a godsend, um, but it's really the, the burden for financing them and building them and putting the curriculum together was on these poor communities who had to give every single cent that they had to get some kind of, of education Um through the 1950s, where where Brown v. Board, I mean, the country put uh, the the former slaveholding states put so much effort and money and and um, time and creative thinking into figuring out how not to integrate schools, how to how to uh, they would close entire school districts um, instead of of uh, thinking about how to how to integrate up through the 70s. Um, where you know we all know about the the struggles that the countries had with busing, which fundamentally was about we do not want our schools educate uh, integrated, um, and you had people like Joe Biden and others who would going so far as to say we will we will you know forbid any school districts who want to integrate their schools from using federal funds to put gasoline in buses in order to achieve that. Um, like really, if if we had put all of that energy and time into the one thing that we know works, where would we be um, as a country? As opposed to you know continually seeming to fight these same battles about how do we educate poor people in this nation? Rooks also noticed another remarkably consistent phenomenon across the decades. Wherever Black communities were pushing for access to education, white philanthropists and business groups were right there too. And their interest, well, let's just say that it wasn't always selfless. I kept, when I wrote this book, is the, the thing I, I, I often tell people, I kept backing up just a little bit to figure out um, when there was a period where the, all of this wasn't intertwined, well-meaning, white people, philanthropists, black communities, education, like when they weren't so tightly inter, intertwined. And I kept backing up, backing up, backing up and going, well, maybe it's the 80s, maybe it's the 70s, let's look at the 60s. And I literally backed all the way up to uh, to Reconstruction, to the 19th century, to the the beginning of taxpayer-supported um, compulsory education. So even at the the sort of beginning of public education, you had the same constituencies. You had uh, struggling black communities and poor white communities. You had wealthy philanthropists who was going to actually benefit them to do some things. And you had business folks who needed workers and wanted to increase their bottom line. It wasn't just the intertwining of philanthropy and business that Rooks recognized in this history. Again and again, there was the search for experimental forms of education that always ended up putting the burden back on the same communities that were denied education in the first place. 
people even then came up with these experimental um, forms of education that still managed to put the burden on the the working class communities, on the people who had been denied education um, because they were coming up with these idiosyncratic forms of education. So, So at that time, what they decided is all these different groups from the philanthropists to the business leaders um, to the state legislatures, you know, they all decided that the best thing was going to be if they could take the money um, that was allocated for the education of the newly free black people um, and the South being the South and the South trying to reinstitute Jim Crow or reinstitute white supremacy. The the idea that the, the whole region of the country was really organized along the idea of black, black inferiority and white um, supremacy. So you had the legislatures all trying to figure out how to not have to pay for black students to be educated and to put that burden solely on black communities. Then you had businesses who, um, you know, wanted to have workers. So they were supportive of certain forms of education. So they believed in vocational education and they said, okay, we'll get behind efforts to educate uh, poor black people and poor white people if it's going to benefit our business interests. So vocational education, how to make people uh, make bricks or be servants or um, be nurses, like different kinds of services and that could aid in business. I mentioned way back at the beginning of the episode that Rooks is at Cornell, but she isn't a professor of education or of education history. She's in the Africana Studies Department. And I think part of what makes cutting schools so eye-opening is the sense you get of a history that we think we know being examined with fresh eyes. But it left me wondering, do actual education historians know this history? Because... American education is decentralized. Uh, there couldn't really be robust federal involvement in terms of creating uh, more equitable education for African Americans. Uh, it was power largely devolved to states and local government, uh, which engaged in highly varying practices. Uh, philanthropists, many times with good intentions, uh, but acting out of a very particular worldview, uh, which often uh, was divorced from any real experience in the communities that they sought to help, um, brought uh, a set of troubling assumptions and beliefs with them in their work. Um, and then the private sector, uh, you know, of course, has always been motivated primarily by the pursuit of profit, which brings its own set of complications. Um, I think worth noting here is the fact that communities have always sought to promote education for themselves. And this was no less true in African-American communities. Um, and there's a, a good body of research that illustrates just how successful uh, some of those communities were at promoting really fantastic schools with extremely limited resources. And what they wanted primarily was uh, equality of resources so that they could continue doing for themselves what they were already trying to do. Um, that, unfortunately, has rarely been the case. We have rarely seen uh, governmental, non-governmental, private sector actors empowering uh, people at the grassroots level to take action 
uh, on their own parts uh, to help themselves. Um, and so, you know, I, I would just add that that you know, there's an interesting uh, historical absence there, which we have never really seen. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, even to today, we still see um, these three sectors: the governmental sector, the non-governmental sector, and the private sector acting. Uh, in you know fairly expected ways in public education, uh, and and in many cases not entirely different ways than we might have seen fifty, a hundred, one hundred and fifty years ago. Rooks introduces a term in her book that captures the interplay of unequal education and the search for idiosyncratic alternatives and the money making that has forever gone along with both. The term is segrenomics. It's a combination of segregation and economics. Take, for example, the industry that has arisen to make sure that students attending schools in sought-after school districts actually live in those communities. In some of the districts, they have, there's a whole business that has come up um, around keeping these, these kinds of students out. Um, they're from, from private investigators who uh, literally follow people around. Um, to and from school to see where do they live, um, to ask, you know, giving finders fees to people to kind of turn in your classmates uh, or parents suspect that, you know, those kids don't look like they belong here. Um, and you turn them in and it finds that they're not, you can get up to $250, 300 um, in, uh, So in some of the stories that I tell in the, in the book, um, you, you have working class parents. In one instance, it's a, a, a woman who's a live-in housekeeper for a family in Orinda, California. And, you know, she lives there with her daughter, who at the time, um, in 2014, was seven. And she, she sends her child to the school that's a few blocks away um, because this is where they live. Their residence puts them in this school district. The One of the uh, uh, these companies that are verifying attendance, which has become a, a multi-million dollar uh, enterprise in the country now, that these different companies that either use technology or actual people to follow folks around, um, you know, said, well, you know, it looks like she's going back and forth to a, a home that qualifies her, but I don't think that they're the taxpayers. Um, I think that they just live there. And so district officials decide, yes, even though so far we've said, as long as you live within your primary residences within these school boundaries, you are you are eligible to go to the school. These officials decided, well, that didn't really apply to someone who was a live-in housekeeper um, because they weren't the ones paying taxes. And even though there was no law that said that it was the taxes um, that that determined your eligibility to go to school. They launched a um, a suit against her, accusing her of stealing school, which was a uh, like I think twenty thousand dollars a year uh, in Arenda, which would which was a felony. This particular case ended with the woman giving her employer custody of her daughter just so that she could continue going to that school. It's just one of the outrageous examples of people being prosecuted for what Rooks calls stealing school. But her point is that segronomics includes both the exclusion of poor students from wealthy districts and the industries that enforce that exclusion. Segronomics is also at work on the other side of that unequal divide. Um, but we are have put up this barrier for uh, in all kinds of ways that if uh, you need to stay in your segregated school system 
um, because you are the the thing that's allowing businesses to come in and test. You know, we have to test to see how well you're doing, and that's a growth area. But if you don't have people who are willing to stay in those areas um, to be tested. You know, it's it's I think it's time to ask, is that part of the reason we are so opposed um, to trying integration just only because we know it works? Like this is the only reason that I'm saying, why don't we see more uh, uh, efforts, system wide efforts to really take uh, integration seriously? Um, because we can say that that works as opposed to some of these other kind of fly by night ideas of let's have the children um be educated virtually. Let's have the Chrome pad, you know, do it. Let's have the teachers be in a central location and you log on and you get free internet. Um, instead of trying those, let's just try what we know works. I interviewed Noliwe Rooks right after the New York Times ran a big story about Silicon Valley trying to influence decision makers in the Baltimore County Public Schools, trying to get tech products into the classroom. I asked her if this is yet another example of segronomics, and she said, that it's one example too many. I tend to be uh, the kind of person who believes that you have to face problems really dead head on, even if they're hard, if you're going to solve them. So tap dancing around doesn't make any sense. But it would really, uh, in this instance, all this tap dancing around saying, we don't want to make white people have to change their lives at all in order to integrate um, schools. Like, just say that. So then we can we can start um, like if districts would really just say it, I mean, their their behavior says it. I mean, they're saying it in every way but words. Um, but, you know, then we could start figuring out, well, what do you do in the absence of that? And is that legal? Is that OK? Is, is that something that needs to be adjudicated? But as long as we keep tap dancing around this thing and kind of go, what we need to find is a form of education, a delivery method that will make segregation OK. So the Chromebooks are going to make up for um, the stability of higher achieving kinds of school districts. Um, it's always an idiosyncratic form of education that benefits these companies more than the communities. Um, and I, I really do think it's just time that we just take a look at that. Is this how we want these tax dollars spent? You know, for people who, who are not directly impacted by what's happening in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, in one of these struggling school districts, whose kids may go to public school, um, but it's not one of these kinds of schools where um, people are flailing to come up with some new experimental, you know, idea for how to educate these kids. It is, is this, does this make the most sense or can we take a hard look at what it would take to integrate again? There are just no constituencies other than, you know, like Nicole Hannah-Jones um, and, so, you know, the constituency of one, you know, that are really organized and and keeping that that issue alive. And in the meantime, you have tech companies and other com businesses sort of driving a truck through that hole that's left. That was Noliwe Rooks. She's the author of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Definitely one of my favorite books of last year. Now, Jack, I want to bring you back in for a few final thoughts. We've featured some books on the show that have really changed the way I think about the world. Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, about how government created residential segregation, was one of them. And I'd put Cutting School on that list, too. Both of them shed light on our tireless pursuit of shortcuts and silver bullets to deal with the legacies of segregation 
while leaving the thing itself basically intact. I think one of the things that people are overlooking here is the endurance of structures and culture. So when we're thinking about segregation, which many people would assume uh, would have fallen to the wayside uh, of history in the mid-20th century, endures because the structures that were erected to support a segregated society in many cases remain. Uh, the purpose of them uh, has changed. The impetus may no longer be relevant, but the structures persist. Um, the way we organize school districts, for instance, is one of them. Um, the way that attendance zones uh, are designed uh, is another. In terms of culture, we can think through the fact that while we may claim to live up to more egalitarian ideals today, the fact is that we have a culture in our society of sending children to segregated schools. Uh, when one grows up with that as something that is normalized, it's quite easy to mouth egalitarian ideals while valuing an experience for one's own children that would mimic one's own schooling experiences. Um, this is how you end up in a society which uh, is not guided by a North Star of racial prejudice, but which nevertheless continues to perpetuate a system that, for all intents and purposes, does not look particularly different in 2017 than it did in 1957 or 1917. I have to say, Jack, that I am a little surprised to hear you making this argument because usually when you're on the receiving end of an argument that nothing has changed in public schooling for the last 100 years, the last 75 years, you fly into a rage, and I have witnessed this myself on several occasions. Okay, well then I'll fly into a rage against myself here and uh, make the point that it is important to believe two things at the same time. It's important to believe that uh, nothing has changed and it's also important to believe that a tremendous amount has changed. Um, neither one of those is particularly helpful on its own. It's not helpful to hear people say that great progress has been made, that there are opportunities that young people have today uh, that they wouldn't have had 100 years ago. That's absolutely true, and it's not particularly helpful. And equally, uh, it's absolutely true that in many ways, uh, our schools are as segregated today as they were in the past. Um, that's also not particularly helpful. Uh, I find the most useful discussion to be one that uh, navigates the productive tension between the fact that things have changed and at the same time things haven't changed. And uh, by doing so, we can focus on why some things haven't changed and we can really try to leverage uh, those things that have changed in order to create a fairer, more just, uh, and more effective educational system for all kids. Well put. And if you're curious about why you just heard a bird chirping in the background, well, let's just say it's a hopeful sound to kick off the new year. And just a reminder, if you like the content that Jack and I have been serving up on a bi-weekly basis, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you consume your podcast fare. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire, and this is Have You Heard. Have You Heard.